So the Fly Guys podcast is practical consciousness. So the moral of the story is for 2019, don't confuse movement with achievement and activity with accomplishment. Understand when food is directly in your midst, recognize it, and go after it. I'm Warren Horton. I'm a corporate strategist, and if I could be in any need of service, please contact me. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. You're listening to The Fly Guy Show. They do everything on the fly and in such a fly manner. Stay fly, stay fly, stay fly. The views expressed on The Fly Guy Podcast by the guests of The Fly Guy Podcast are only the views of the guests. Unless we say we agree. Unless explicitly stated. <laughs> All right, welcome, it's your man welcome, DJ welcome. Seiko Varner and the lovely Chandel Jackson. Good stuff. Welcome to the San Kofa. We do this the, what, the third Thursday of every month now? Third Thursday of every month. All right, here in Hampton Roads area, we make sure we get a chance to network with some great people. Make sure that all the great businesses in Hampton Roads get a little spotlight, a little shine. Testing, testing, testing. All right, so I have the pleasure of introducing Mr. Warren Horton. Um, Mr. Horton um, started off uh, 20 years ago um, providing services for uh, as a vendor for Cox, successful uh, vendor for Cox. But before that, his inspiration for starting this business, um, he's the born and raised in Orphan, is that correct? Uh, Virginia Beach. Virginia Beach, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I missed that memo. <laughs> um, he's one of three siblings who um, all had an opportunity to uh, go to college, um, but Mr. Horton had a different um, inspiration, I would say, or, or drive. Um, he decided to be the glue for his family and to um, stay at home and take care of, um, was it your grandmother, great grandmother? Great grandmother. Great grandmother. So, uh, one of the tools he developed to do this was to get into business. 20 years ago, and so um, successful vendor for Cox, and also a successful uh, government contractor in the um, state of Virginia and Tennessee, is that yeah. correct? And, and Tennessee as well, so um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for uh, Mr. Warren Horton. How you guys doing this evening? How many of you um, ever considered going into business for yourself by a show of hands? How many of you guys are already currently in business for yourself? Okay, well, I talk to the side of the room. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just joking. Um, I'm here to talk to you guys about the government contracting sector. A lot of people talk about the government spends $300 billion or $500 billion a year in contracting. But you have to cleverly ask yourself, out of $300 to $500 billion, how can I carve out my slice of the pie? Or better yet, how can I even get a seat to the table? And the, the sad reality is you will never get a seat at that table. So you have to understand exactly which role and which game and what lane and what vein you really want to ingrain yourself in order to be successful. So um, I got a question for you guys. How many of you guys ever been on a cruise ship? Okay, so um, what's the first thing? You can just yell out. What's the first thing they do when they bring you on a cruise ship? Egress. Anybody? Other than charge you money. <laughs> Because once you, once you get on a cruise ship, you already paid your money, right? Okay. So the first thing they do is, is take you to the boat, let you see the boat. It's all pretty, but they take you to see the point of egress. So my point is, when anytime you go into business, always understand your exit strategy. You see, any of us can get into business. But you can. All of us are adults. You can pick and choose what you want to do, how you want to do it. But the key is, how do you get out of it? 
And how do you get out of it unharmed and profitable? That's the key. So um, a couple of things I wanted to talk about was the 8A contract, the minority set-asides. And so many individuals really think that the minority set-asides are actually established for you to be successful. If they're already established for you to be sustainable. Now they put in place for you to be able to take care of your family long-term, generational wealth, 10 years, 15, 20 years. How many individuals in the room know of any minority-owned company that's been around for 15 years? 20 years, 30 years. Out of those companies, are they mom and pops or are they scalable corporations? Mom and pops. Because unless we understand our exit strategy, we'll never get to the point to be scalable for long term for generations and generations. There's a couple of individuals that I had the privilege and I was blessed and honored to be um, taught by when I sat at their toolage. Um, a, a man by the name of Herman Valentine Sr. Has anyone ever heard of Herman Valentine Sr.? For anyone that's in IT, Herman Valentine was one of the pioneers back in the early 80s to make hundreds of millions of dollars in government contracting with the IT. You can say he was the black uh, Bill Gates, if you will, in the 80s. How any, any of you guys in construction? Anyone? Have you ever heard of SW Day Construction? Wilton Day? Back in the 80s and 90s, he was the largest black-owned minority contractor in the state of Virginia. Anybody ever heard of Hamada Hoffler? Anybody ever went to Town Center in Virginia Beach? So you see Amada Hoffler's name on the top of the building. What individuals don't know is that Amada Hoffler was actually aiding SW Day Construction into growing. But see, the, another person I'm going to bring in mind is uh, Rosa Alexander. Any of you guys ever heard of Rosa Alexander? See, Rosa Alexander at one point in the early 80s, she was a black female. She was the largest janitorial contractor at one point in time, employing over 300 employees. But her establishment is no longer here. Her name is on a building at the Rosa Alexander Hall in Norfolk State. But there's no lineage. There's no le true legacy that she can pass on that generational wealth. So my role as a corporate strategist, and because I've been in the trenches for so long, is that I, fi I figured out ways through my own loss, through my own trials, through my own success, I figured out ways how to teach individuals how to make a transition and how to make that transition to the point where it can be a long-term transition and it can be profitable. A lot of individuals, they talk about um, the no money down or um, easy money to get from the government. That doesn't happen. There's no such thing as no money down. You got to have gas to make the vehicle move. So the only thing I'm here to tell you guys is that if you guys really truly want to know the real grit about government contracting, how to take your business from point A to point B, to make it scalable, to make it sustainable. Because anyone can get into something, but can you really walk away with something? Can you really walk away saying, I made a difference and also I made money? That's the bottom line. You can make differences all day long, but if you're not making money to take care of your family, not taking care of your generation, not even taking care of your basic needs of your household, without living check to check or invoice to invoice, or even taking an invoice, yeah, whoop de woo I got a $100,000 contract, but you gotta go to an invoice factoring company that's charging you 30% in order to make payroll. So there's a lot of factors that we don't know because we haven't really been taught to know. And so they, they dangle the, the carrot in front of us as far as the set-asides, but anything that's set-aside, just understand it's already been planned. They already know exactly how much money they're allocating towards each contract each invoice, each job order. And then as minorities, at times we go 
and we underbid. And when we underbid, we're thinking we're doing ourselves a service, but really we're doing ourselves an injustice because now we're driving the market downward fast. So is there any questions you guys may want to ask in regards to uh, contracting or government contracting or business in general? So everybody is happy and satisfied with their current employ employment or financial status? Can anybody use more? Does anybody want more? We have a question in the back. We have a question in the back. Okay. Bert, give him the mic. Give that person the mic. What is the best way for me to get into government contracting? Now, this is funny because that's my wife. My wife is an actual government employee, and she's been a government employee for 15 years, and she's into government contracting. So I call her like sleeping with the enemy because we go at it because she sees it from the inside and I see it from the outside. So the best way to actually go at or even to start to do business with the government, you have to have a clear vision as far as what it is that you want to do. Are you providing a service? Are you providing a good? Are you going to supply staffing? What exactly is your niche? What are you trying to accomplish? And once you find out exactly what it is that you want to do, or maybe it's something that you're currently doing now for your current, your current employee, employer, you may say, you know, I can do this better. But if you can do it better, then how can you do it better? And why should you do it better? And if, if you can answer those questions of how and why, then why not do it right now? Any other questions? There's going to be a major reconstruction on the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel in 2019. How can uh, contractors present and put themselves in a position to profit from that billion of dollars that's going to happen? That transaction of over a billion dollars in the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel uh, reconstruction coming up soon. Now, that's, that's a, a good topic because the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel has been here for decades. So um, the information and the cost analysis is nothing new. They have historical data. Every time they do reconstruction on a tunnel, you can always go back and see exactly what, what they allocated for individual line of work and scope of work. So the best thing for any person that's looking to get into that line of work or any line of work, you have to do your research. You have to go to the, to the site visits. You have to go and speak to the contracting officer or the procurement officer. You have to go and talk to maybe the person that had the contract prior to find out what he did wrong so you know exactly what not to do going forward. So we always got to understand that um, the wheel has been here. We just got to realize how to make the wheel work for us. And then when I say us, I'm not talking as black people. I'm talking from a business standpoint. How can you make the wheel work better for you as far as your, your endeavor, as far as your business? Because um, if it's paving, if it's concrete, if it's clothing, if it's pencils, if it's staffing, if it's medical supplies, if it's CNA, the government has a need for each and every one of those categories. You just need to figure out exactly what the incumbent did to win that award and what, they, what did the incumbent do to lose that award. And then you can strategically put yourself in place to win. Any other questions? We need the mic for the recording. We need the mic for the recording. Um, so I, I was wondering if there's value in um, like burgeoning technologies as far as government contracts are concerned. So like renewable energies, we know that, or from my understanding, the government is not into that so much yet. Do you think that 
there's value in trying to introduce new technologies as far as how it pertains to government contracts? Oh, absolutely. It's something that I just learned not too long ago because I spent a lot of money doing my research within the internal government. See, a lot of people have a false conception that there's no such thing as sole sourcing. See, the government will pay you major money for your concept. This gentleman here, he may have a concept, uh, I think I can make this better. You can actually pitch that concept to the government and they will actually pay you to do research and development. That's called a SBIR. And then once you are awarded a SBIR, you automatically get a sole source, which means they have to go directly to you first. If that, if, if any, I ain't want to talk over the interference, but they give you a direct sole source if that line item becomes open for solicitation. And as far as renewable energy, if you come up with the concept, like I met a, I met a young lady at one of the conferences her company, she was 22 years old. They were awarded an SBIR for like $2 million. And you'll never guess exactly what the award was for. They had a contract with NASA, and they were trying to determine how to transport drinking water on the spaceships to NASA. And just because of her concept, they paid her like $2 million to do research and development. Regardless if it worked or not, it's the fact of the matter that they can say we've spent $2 million on research for NASA. Any other questions? Somebody got to have a question. Y'all let me put on my good suit to come out to the quiet room? <laughs> right here, right here. Okay, boy. all right. Okay. So it sounds like uh, one of the uh, re reoccurring um, things I've heard you say is that there were points in your life where you had coaches and mentors that kind of got you from a certain point that you had gotten to to the next stage. Is that is that a product? I mean, is that a service that you render to the uh, to people that are looking to navigate the treacherous waters of government contracting? Oh, absolutely, because we all need a guide. Because none of us have ever been where we are. Even a young lady here in the corner. How old are you, young lady? Nine. She's her first time being nine. My daughter over here is twelve. She's been nine before, so she can talk to her about being nine. She can let her know what pitfalls may come up in whatever grade she's in, or even dealing with uh, her bullies at that particular age. So in business, you always need a guide. We can never know it all. No matter how we may think we may know it all or we can make it all have big grandiose ideas, but the reality is nothing is new. And any idea that we already may have or idea that we may think of, someone else already had that idea. It's good stuff, thank you. Uh, is it okay to take on a huge contract without having enough employees going into the contract? Well, I mean, I think you pretty much answered that yourself. Is it okay to take on a huge contract when you don't have enough employees to handle the contract? When you really play it back in your mind, you're putting yourself in a situation where you're losing coming into the gate. And so for any young person or any young business going into business, and this is from experience, they can dangle the $100,000, $2 million, $3 million contract in front of you. But if you don't have the liquid resources or if you don't have the resources to finish the job, then you're losing going into the gate. Because how are you going to make your payroll? What if your invoice is an arbitration? Or what if, uh, when it's time to be paid, what if they delay paying? So now you go from a 30-day net to a 45-day net, and 60-day. You think your employees are going to hold out for 45 days before you can pay them? Or your vendors or your suppliers? So you want to make sure that you're in a position financially that you can carry that contract. Any other questions? look smart. What kind of question you got? You. 
<laughs> I know you got a question. What kind of question you got? It don't matter. No better time than right now. Slacking on my job. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Sonia Phillips, and my brand is Stretch Couture. I make custom clothing and costumes. And um, I'm looking forward to being relevant in the global market. Right now, I'm just trying to find the best way to move from behind the sewing machine into uh, mass production and, um, you know, getting sponsors and um, investors. So going into 2019, I've really just been thinking about my business entity, um, going from a sole proprietorship to maybe LLC, or even I know there's a lot of social entrepreneur um, business entities now. I do a lot of community service. So my question to you is, what do you suggest to a business owner that um, desires to move from being a maker to move into the mass market um, and also have a socially conscious uh, business? In order to move from a small market to the mass market, you have to know exactly the product that the people need. So um, as the old saying that says, if you supply to the masses, you'll live with the classes, which basically means if you find out exactly what the majority of the people want and desire, then you'll make money. So sometimes dealing social, being a social conscious person, you put yourself in a box because you're not really attracting the masses of individuals. You can always keep something like, you may hear the slogan, a starving artist, or you may hear certain celebrities or, or rap stars or musicians, they say, well, I would have never chose this single to be my first release because they have an emotional connection. Whereas a person that's running a business, they're looking at the bottom line. So you can always have your socially conscious products that you supply, but you have to understand where your market is and where the mass amount of the money is going to come that's going to support your product. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's hard, but it's true. You know, it's hard, but it's true. And that's why you see so many individuals that they have a passion for something, but it never really takes off. And, it, and, and it's almost like they're spinning their wheels and not getting anywhere. And it's, it's, it can be discouraging because they put so much of their faith and their belief and their hope behind something they truly believe in. But the reality is the masses of the individual may not be interested in it. No problem. All right. Quick question. There's a, a gentleman who's selling his wares. So blessed LLC tonight. And he has oils and he has copper and he has jewelry. How could that company go from being a sole proprietor to you know, providing those type of goods to uh, government, government entities? Is so, there a market for that? For these items here? Excellent. Yes, yes. I mean, he would have to do a lot of research to see because this is a niche market. You know, it's a very niche market. It's geared to a specific demographic of individuals and people. It may be a great product. Um, the only thing I could, I would recommend, and again, this is just my only humble opinion, is that, what's his name again? So Blessed LLC. The So Blessed is just, um, just focus a little bit more strongly on, on your brand because you, you have a lot of products. But what product here actually says So Blessed? 
You understand what I'm saying? What is see? Sometimes our people confuse branding and marketing as being the same exact thing. See, your brand is what draws people to you. Marketing is what's going to cause them to pay for you. You understand what I mean? So you got a beautiful display, but out of all these people here, they all can benefit from your product. They're all African American. But I haven't seen too many people come up and patronize your stand tonight. You understand what I'm saying? You got to realize the reality of the fact is our people are a hard sell. That's the truth. We are a hard sell. We're, we're extremely critical of one another. So you have to make sure you stand out. You got to make sure your brand is in front of them. They may not like it, but the more they see your brand, they'll start to recognize, oh, that's so blessed. That's so blessed. It's almost like you got to brainwash your own people to say, okay, well, that's so blessed. Let me go see what he got going on. Does that help? Okay. It's sad, but I mean, it's, it's the reality of it. You know, you got a, you got a beautiful display. Maybe if it was like an Afrocentric um, like venue or maybe like a, a showcase and you have so many people that's into the, the natural Afrocentric, African-American oils and they'll come and patronize you. But it's just, it's just a hard market. You know, it's just a hard market. And like I said, if you called up a particular brand and you want a certain kind of way and maybe pitch it to like major distribution, that's another arena for you. But as far as the government, I really don't see the government having a need for it. Not to say you may come up with a whole different line under So Blessed and supply it to the government. Because they, they still use soap. They still use shampoo for the troops. So you may come up with something that's all natural and organic. And they're looking for that. Uh, any other questions? Yes. Or not seek, but that work. There's always a need for service. There's always a need for service. Any type of service you can you can provide to the government. Um, staffing is another one. Um, I was talking to John today about his IT firm. IT is another one, especially because of cybersecurity and internet security. It's always a good feel. Anything dealing with cutting edge technology, the government is always willing and ready to spend money on that. And then a lot of times in the cutting technology edge, there's not a lot of historical data that can support your bid. So if you're, if you're a good salesman, you can go in and pitch your idea and your concept and show them why for a future reference, it will be best for them to spend an additional $100,000 or $200,000, then they'll pay it. Anyone else? Real estate? Oh, well, the government, even on the state level, I mean, they're huge in real estate. They all need offices, agencies. So you, you, if you go and search the solicitations on the real estate, depending on the NICS code, you'll see exactly how many um, agencies are looking for real estate, for rental. Even if it comes down to booking for um, um, conventions, hotels, they spend millions of dollars a year trying to secure a venue for a hotel or a convention. Any other questions? Yes. Is it a good idea to keep the contract and work local or go out of Virginia? Well, that's a good question. It all depends on what you're doing. It all depends exactly what type of service you provide. Because services that you may provide here in Hampton Roads may not be where the contract is located. A lot of times the contract can be closer to D.C. 
When I was in position, my footprint stretched from Onancock on the Eastern Shore all the way to Tennessee. And that's because I strategically placed myself in situations. Just to give you guys a, a quick point. Has anyone ever heard of SWAM certification with the state? Is anyone in the room, are they SWAM certified? It stands for Small Women and Minority Owned Business. SWAM certified, you are. See, have you had any success bidding on any SWAM certified uh, contracts? Oh, okay, okay. See, one thing about the SWAM certification, like anything else, is that when the market is saturated, you never get a chance to really put forth your best bid. So what I did 10 years ago and I had great success is that I just took a hustler's mentality. I went to an area where there was no one. So when I went to bid and compete in an area where there was no one, I was automatically awarded the bid. And I had I set a goal with five contracts, five turned to 10, 10 turned to 15, 15 turned to 30, 30 turned to 45 in one year. So it was all about strategically placing yourself where the need is. I mean, in Hampton Roads, you can see SWAM certified. If you're SWAM certified, you go and bid on a contract, you may see 500 people in the room. And everybody's trying to outbid one another. But on the, on the rural part of Virginia, in the mountains, there hardly any minorities is bidding on those contracts. So you got to be willing to venture out and take the risk. Any other questions? Yes. Hello again, Sonia Phillips from Stretch Couture. So one of the things that um, I heard the gentleman over here ask about, you know, what types of businesses um, could they use? Um, I went to a conference, and one of the things that the young lady mentioned was sometimes there are subcontractors uh, or whatever. So somebody like me, my business is sewing and fashion, but um, I can maybe seek out someone that has a contract that needs to maybe have a, a women's conference, for example. Um, what advice or resources do you have for someone like me or even for So Blessed to be able to connect to um, contracts uh, that might be able to hire us, um, someone that's not SWAM certified or someone that has a business that is a niche market? Okay. But that's a, that's a good point. But see, getting your SWAM certification or your DBE or your services able veteran, that all goes as like a feather in your hat. Because now when you go to these larger corporations, you bring those certifications with you. And the majority of the time, these large corporations, they can't qualify for those certifications. So now what happens when they, uh, when they bid on the contracts is a point system. So when they show that they already have someone on board, the SWAM certified or DBE, they get a higher point system. So nine times out of ten, they're more enthused as far as working with you. Even if you may not have the resources to do the work, they'll still subcontract it out with you and do like a joint venture. Now, I was just thinking about, you, you, what's the name of your company again? Yes, it's Stretch Couture. Okay, so it's weird because when you say Stretch Couture to me, the first thing in my mind goes to like uh, neoprene, uh, spandex, and all, all of those things are things that the government uses. You understand what I'm saying? So when you, when you, you say Stretch Couture, do deep research to find out exactly what the government is using. And then you can tailor that to fit a need for the government. Uh -huh. Anyone else? Um, I hope I was able to answer some questions you guys may have. But before I leave, I'm going to leave you with one story. Regardless if you're in business or regardless if, um, if you're unemployed, if you're retired or if you're a child, I'm going to leave you with this one story. It's a story about um, the processionary caterpillar. Have anyone ever heard of a processionary caterpillar? You know the story already. 
But a recessionary caterpillar is a very rare caterpillar. And the way they travel is like a funeral procession, one behind the other. Now, the recessionary caterpillar, they feed on pine needles. So it, it was a um, demonstration that was done. They placed a pine needle underneath a plastic cup. And they let the processionary caterpillars loose. So the processionary caterpillars started to go around and around the cup. Around and around the cup they went. Over and over and over again. So when the cup was removed, the hairs on the back of the back of the this processionary caterpillar began to stand up. Because whenever they sense food, that's the sign they can tell that food is in their reach. The hairs on the back of the neck begin to stand up. But again, they kept going around and around. A processionary caterpillar went around and around. Day two, day three, day four. On day five, all the caterpillars dropped dead from starvation. So the moral of the story is for 2019, don't confuse movement with achievement and activity with accomplishment. Understand when food is directly in your midst, recognize it and go after it. I'm Warren Horton. I'm a corporate strategist, and if I could be of any need of service, stay fly, please stay contact. fly, stay fly. Stay conscious. Stay fly.